Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Kim Grenolds of dogman.com with Chris Fetter, Scott Eklund. We are post Apple Cup. We are post Oregon game. We are post season with the Pac 12 championship game coming up on Friday. Should have a good idea probably Sunday morning about where Washington is going to go in the bowl game. We can talk about that a little bit later. But, uh, you know, just I wasn't able to do the podcast with you guys after the Washington State game. Just logistics on getting over there. It's just I, I wish they would figure something out for the games that are over there. Um, it makes it so difficult for anybody to get there, not just the media, but fans. And it's probably the smallest um Washington fan contingent that I'd seen at an Apple Cup in a while, although they did bring uh, the big band. But, uh, you know, just Scott, just after that Wazoo game, what are some of the reverberations and just aftermath from that Washington State game, not only with Michael Penix, but Washington? But what did that Washington State game do for University of Washington football? Well, I mean, I think it was big. You end up the season with 10 wins. I mean, I, I went through and counted and there's only been I think it was 10 seasons with 10 wins or more and in, in, in the program's history. And, and you just don't, it doesn't happen that much. Even, even playing 12 games, it's very tough to get to 10 wins and, and Washington got there. Um, I know that there was some frustration because Washington probably should at the minimum be 11 and one and possibly even 12 and 0 if they had played a little bit better against UCLA. So a uh, lot of, a lot of, uh, ifs and buts and nuts and all that, that say, whatever that saying is. But, you know, I think it's great for the program. I think it's great for Kalen DeBoer in his first year. It ends up uh, getting Ryan Grubb, you know, a, a big payday. And and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. And and uh, I, I think it's just huge for the prestige of the program. And moving forward on the recruiting trail, it'll only help with 2024 kids, 2025 kids. Hey, Chris, with 700 yards total offense, did that capture the attention nationally? Did it capture some attention for Michael Penix, or is that just the bubble that we're living in right now? Well, I think it caught the nation's attention maybe two days later. Um, I, I definitely don't think anybody outside of the most hardcore Washington fans were even paying attention east of the Mississippi in terms of the Apple Cup itself. But when they take a look at the stats and they start breaking it down and maybe they start watching some of the either the replays or the highlights, I mean, it's hard not to look at that and be pretty impressed with that 
Um, clearly it didn't really raise a ripple much in terms of the playoff poll and things like that, because, um, you know, the politics involved with that, you know, the playoff needs to make sure that they have the top two Pac-12 teams playing in the championship game. And uh, you couldn't do that if they had moved Washington up uh, the appropriate amount, because bottom line is Washington beat a seven and five Washington State team in Pullman on the road in a difficult environment. And they beat them by 18 points. And Utah had to go to Colorado and blew them out, but didn't blow them out as much as Washington blew out Colorado, too. So I don't know. It just uh, it's just one of those things where, again, location wise, geographic wise, geographically uh, being in the West Coast is not a help when it comes to the national media and it comes to the perception of what Washington did. And then the other thing, too, guys, is obviously when there's this this been this big uh, Penix for Heisman push, as there should have been a while ago. Unfortunately, the the game that's going to kill them is that Arizona State game. You know, they come across with a win there. They're playing in the Pac-12 title game. They've got a chance to make the playoff. All yep. sorts of things would have opened up for them if they had beaten Arizona State, but coulda, woulda, shoulda. And Scott, to me, the thing that's just the craziest, after last year being so bad offensively, so inept offensively, I mean, as bad as offensive team as we've seen in a while in today's college football where you know, offense is the key, they're, they are right now the number two overall offensive team in the country. Total offense, they're number two behind only Tennessee. Now, if I would have told you that at the beginning of the year or spring ball or even fall ball, what would your reaction have been? Uh, I, I would have said, eh, that's a little that's a little optimistic there. I would have thought they could. I mean, knowing what Jake Hanner was able to do in this offense and that Michael Penix had played in it before, I think the biggest thing was if Michael Penix stayed healthy, Washington's offense should be in pretty good shape. I didn't think they'd be number two in the country. I thought maybe top 20 was probably where you'd be. Um, but Washington is 17 yards behind Tennessee in overall offense, 17 yards per game behind them in total offense. Um, they have the number one passing offense in the entire country. And, you know, I think they're what number two in the, in scoring as well, or no, I think they're number three or four, but whatever they are, they're very high up in scoring at 40, almost 41 points per game. So no, Kim, I, to answer your question, I never would have thought they would have been in the, in the top two or top five in the country. But I thought if Michael Penick stayed healthy, you could you could have snuck into the top twenty, but never in my wildest dreams did I believe they'd be where they are. And Scott, we've talked about this quite a bit. Where in, just during spring ball and fall ball, we talked about it during practice. You take a look at the three quarterbacks, and if you didn't know who was who, you would have had a tough time picking number one, number two, number three. I think at the end of fall practice, um, Penix started to separate himself a little bit. But from what we saw, and we didn't see everything, it didn't look like he was that much ahead of what we saw. Yeah. I mean, we, we only get to, we only got to see, um, you know, portions of spring practice and then they, they gave us the boot and then they, and then we got to see the first, what week and a half of fall camp and they weren't doing a ton of scrimmaging at that point. So I think he really started to separate himself when they started going into those full live scrimmages and, 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 and probably in the meeting rooms, places that we aren't at to, to see the difference in how he, I mean, the coaches have said over and over, Coach DeBoer, Coach Grubb, even some of the other us offensive assistants have talked, talked about how he's able to get Washington in the right protections. He's able to um, see things that maybe some other guys didn't see and things like that. And I think that's, that was really a huge key in, in making him the starter and, and his success this year. 
Hey, Chris, one of the things that really stood out to me, and I wrote about it a little bit, is for most of the year, it sure looked like Michael Penix was doing everything possible to not take a hit. There were open uh, open runs, running lanes where he would just dump off the ball or go down, but he just seemed to be going out of his way to not take a hit. Against Oregon, he uh, actually ran for the first down, and Grubb had mentioned that he told Michael he wanted him to use his feet a little bit more, but... I think that Michael Penix made a lot of money if he's going into the NFL draft with that pass back to him and showing, I didn't know he could run like that. He looked like a wide receiver. Yeah, he's got, I mean, there's definitely some ideas to the thought that his body is now kind of back to where it should have been, you know, before, not necessarily before all the injuries, but at least to the point where he can absolutely run with the ball if he has to. I mean, he's shown enough scramble ability. To be honest with you guys, I think if if you go back to that Oregon game and you see that early uh, that early third down run where he was able to spin out and get a first down on what was that like third and fifteen or something? It was like, you know, he showed plenty of wheels to get down the field and with a, a little block or so he could he could get that first down. So I think he showed enough, but there's no doubt it's kind of like uh, Cam Ward with the Apple Cup. You know, yeah, that guy can run around all he wants and he can make plays and he can be dual threat and do all that stuff. But bottom line is they're known as pocket passers. They know that they're going to have a bigger impact on the game if they can extend plays in the pocket as opposed to just saying, "Okay, there's read one, there's read two. Nothing's there. I'm going to go run. So, yeah, I mean, he's got that escapability. I think we all saw that. But there's no doubt the last few weeks some of the things that he's been able to show with his legs have really helped his cause and, and have only kind of bumped his stock even further when you're thinking about the draft. Yeah, no, he, he like I said, he just seemed to be going out of his way to not take contact, but I thought he really showed something on that burst and, uh, you know, uh, he, he even juked a little bit. So uh, that was kind of surprising. And, you know, just getting back to that Washington state game, the, um, it was kind of funny where the players, you know, post game had mentioned that they were not going to um, post the flag at mid um, midfield. But uh, as soon as the game was over, what happened was the cops came out on the field and they were in front of the Washington section and there wasn't a lot of fans there. But uh, it was kind of funny where they came out and they were kind of guarding uh, the uh, the logo at midfield. And uh, Jackson Kirkland's comment. Did you hear what Jackson Kirkland said after the game, by the way? I did not. He said that they should have gotten those guys to be defensive coordinators because they did a good job of guarding the logo at midfield. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But uh, that's Jackson. But, yeah, and just, you know, just wanted to talk a little bit about Jackson Kirkland and what an impact he made. Um, I got a chance to talk to him on the field after the Oregon game, as well as the Wazoo. And I think he really took things personally, um, more so than anybody else. And he was pretty emotional. And when you talk about the offensive line as good as it was this year, Chris and Scott, when he came back, he seemed to take that offensive line to another level and then moving inside, took it to even another level. I, I thought I thought it really was his move inside and Fautanu going back out to left tackle. I thought that's where they really found their their uh, their stride as as a unit. Um, I didn't I didn't I thought you could tell he was rusty. Uh, Jackson Kirkland was rusty when he came back. You could tell he he just wasn't 
quite the guy that we were used to. And so when, when he came, when he moved inside, I think there was even still another game or two where he was okay. He wasn't great. Um, but then after that, he's kind of taken off. And I think he's put himself in a spot to be a, an all-conference guy. Probably won't be uh, first team. Um, but I, I could see Troy Fautano and he and Jackson and as well as Henry uh, Benavalu and possibly even Corey Durkee getting some postseason honors. Hey, hey Scott, well, he he's a big man. He is six, seven. Yeah. He says he's down to three twenty five. He was up to three forty and he's not fat at all. Is he too big to play guard at the next level? No, he is not. There's been plenty of guys who are six, 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 seven playing guard. The, the key is the key really is their knee bend and, and how they how they um, are able to to move in, in space and things like that. I think Jackson moves pretty well. Um, he pulls pretty well. That's that's what NFL guards have to do is be able to pull. And, and he does that. So um, I don't see I, I could see him moving to right tackle at some point. Um, I, I he is not a left tackle if he goes to the when he goes to the NFL. So I think he's either a guard or a or a right tackle, and um, he's done himself. He's made himself some money this, this, these last uh, ten weeks or so. And Chris, the thing I like about Jackson Kirkland is he's probably the most physical player on the team. And I, know, I guess when you're the biggest guy on the team and the biggest guy on the field, you're the biggest bully on the field. And he's had his fair physical stuff, and he seems to really relish in that. And he he laughs at it. He thinks it's fun just to tear guys up, and especially when him and um, Troy. Uh, tag team guys, but uh, he's probably the most physical player on the team right now. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I think that a lot of those guys could make uh, some arguments for it. I think Roger Rosengarten could make an argument for being one of the most physical guys out there, um, and Fautani for that matter. I mean, yeah, we all see what happened when he did with the Colorado guy and the penalty for that, but uh, his mistake was more in the mechanics of it, not the <laughs> not the intent. So, um yeah, but I mean that's that's part of the thing you got to have at that level is you've got to play with some nasty and and um, I mean I remember going all the way back to the days of guys like Casey Belica and 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 the the offensive coach at the time offensive line coach at the time saying that you know he was watching him you know create some personal foul calls in high school and stuff and they're like yeah yeah you got to tone that down but in the inside you're doing handsprings because it's so much easier to pull those guys in than to try to get the nasty out of them. So there's no doubt that a guy like Jackson, especially the way he grew up with a, with a dad, with the Washington legacy and just knowing how important it is and what it means to him. I mean, that certainly came out in the Oregon game, certainly came out in the Washington state game. Um, if, if it, if it meant something more to a guy on that team, I'd be shocked because of, of the, of the background of Jackson Kirkland and just kind of growing up in it and what it and what it under what the understanding was that he he's the one that it would have affected the most if they had not been able to pull out those games and I'd even include the Oregon State game in that when we take a look back at the Oregon game and then the Colorado game the um it comes out that they have uh extended uh Kalen DeBoer's contract and after the Washington State game we see a big contract extension for Ryan Grubb, and it was interesting talking to Ryan on Monday where we'd never really asked him, and I really didn't know if he had a desire to be a head coach. Some guys are fine with being assistants, and we always say 
the perfect example of that is Pete Kwiatkowski. You know, Pete's happy just being a coordinator and assistant coach and has no desire to be a head coach. And I wasn't sure if that's the way that Ryan Grubb was wired and he's just happy to be an assistant or if he wanted to be a head coach. But he he said, no, he wants to be a head coach. And maybe that had something to do with the big contract extension that he got, Chris Fetters. Yeah, uh, it may have been. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what, I'm trying to figure out what he hasn't done this year that wouldn't have elicited a contract extension. I mean, he's he's improved the quarterbacks. He's improved the entire offense. He's he's uh, you know made a, a winner out of Scott Huff and that offensive line after a year where they were completely maligned and and beat down and uh, everyone was wondering why Scott Huff was retained on this staff. I think a big part of it was a Ryan Grubb and his background with the offensive line and, and understanding how he could get the the best out of that group. Um, it's just. Yeah, I mean, there was so much that he did, obviously, as a positive, and it was both uh, Grubb and Kalen DeBoer, for that matter. I mean, because the fact is, all this stuff really starts with DeBoer and his system and the, and the system that he not just put together at places like Eastern Michigan and Indiana and obviously starting at Sioux Falls, but, you know, kind of perfected it. And then Grubb was the one that has become the beneficiary of that by taking his act with DeBoer when, you know, at Fresno State and, and now at Washington. Yeah, next year he'll be making 1.45, 2024, 1.55, 2025, he will be at 1.67. Have not seen the buyout numbers on that, so that'll be interesting. But um, I know you guys love it when I ask you questions you're not prepared for, but at uh, 1.4 next year, where does that put him um, in the Pac-12 uh, coordinator salary? Uh, I mean, it's got to put him up near the top. Well, he's the he's the highest paid uh, assistant ever at Washington for starters. That's that's and that's saying quite a bit, considering guys like Kay and and Jimmy Lake and those guys Jimmy? were making over a million dollars. What was Jimmy um, making as his final year as an assistant? Do you remember? I don't, but it was it was well over a million. It was one point two five, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was well over a million, and and so for for Grubb to get that kind of jump, especially uh, considering DeBoer, I mean, his I, I think his jump is bigger than what DeBoer's was if you look at it in percentage. Um, him going from one point, basically just slightly over a million, to almost one point, you know, one four five one five is bigger than DeBoer going from three to whatever he's going to four, whatever, four, four and a half, whatever that is. So it's um, it's quite a statement and it's absolutely reward, uh, uh, deserved. And, and, and hopefully he'll, he'll want to keep on now having talked to um, Ryan Grubb this week, he made no bones about the fact that he wants to become a head coach at some point, but I think he's, grounded enough and understands the idea well enough that uh his time is still yet to be determined and he's not going to jump just because he he wants to jump into a head coaching role i think if he gets a couple more years under his belt like he has this year um the offers will come to him and they will be big well it was interesting because i asked kalen DeBoer how he treats that with you know uh schools coming after his assistance, if he goes to Jen Cohen to get more money to keep them or if he encourages them to go. And he said it's all about the right fit. And I think Ryan Grubb is smart enough to know, let's not just take a coaching job. Let's make sure it's the right fit. Because, hey, Scott, I, Scott, if you were at a party, if you were just at a bar and you're talking to Ryan Grubb and you knew that there was an offensive coordinator in the room somewhere, 
Are you looking at Ryan Grubb as being that guy? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you're looking for. I mean, you know, there's the flashy guys like Lane Kiffin and Sark, you know, when they were when they were doing their thing. But that's because they were at, you know, USC. You know, Ryan Grubb is a Midwest guy. He came. Yeah. He just came from Fresno. You know, he doesn't uh, portray himself as a as a guy who's a big time coordinator. But honestly, would you have thought that Charlie Weiss was going to be a heck of an offensive coordinator for, uh, you know, New England back in the day? I mean, sometimes you know these guys betray themselves with with. I mean, would anyone thought that Chris Strauser, a guy who's like my size and smaller than I am, actually. It was one of the better offensive line coaches in the country. So, I mean, it's just it it just it they they kind of their personalities and and their their looks can always be deceiving. But the biggest thing that that Ryan Grubb I think does is he knows offense. He tinkers constantly. He's he he said in his press conference on Monday that he's constantly looking for new things that he can do and and what he can you know what he can put out there and what he can use. Uh, you know, to offset different things and all that. And, and, you know, it, it's just, it's kind of fun listening to him talk and, and he, he doesn't give you a ton of coach speak, but he also isn't going to betray the offense either. He's not going to give you too much either, but you know, you ask him and, and he, you know, and Kalen DeBoer said that pass to Jalen McMillan had sat on ice for about three or four weeks. And so that tells you they, he has a, an eye for, Hey, let's do this. Let's, let's bring this, um, this, you know, wide receiver on this route against this coverage and we should be able to score a touchdown or get a big play, whatever it is. And, and then they have to sit on it, but they get it in the middle of a game and he's got that in his bag of tricks that he can pull out and say, all right, we're going to run this because this is the look they're giving us. Somebody was asking uh, me about our dealings with Kalen DeBoer, and they said, if you didn't know that Kalen DeBoer was a football coach, what would you guess he did for a living? And I said, he's pr- I would guess that he would probably own or run a big company that sold farm equipment. And see, I, I, I would say uh, a teacher. Yeah. I, I think he just enjoys teaching, and, and he's got that calm personality. He's encouraging. He's a guy who's always... Uh, happy to talk and chat with you. And, and, you know, he's just, he's so different from the different coaches that we've dealt dealt with. And that he's obviously got to have a type A personality to get to this level of what he's doing, but he, you, that doesn't come across when he's dealing with the general public, the type A stays as the football coach. It doesn't stay with Kalen DeBoer. It's pretty impressive. It was funny because that penalty that they called on him late in the fourth quarter about all, you know, trying to, I don't know, jam the signals for Washington State. I have never seen Coach DeBoer that animated. He was hot. That's a, that's the hottest I've ever seen him. Well, yeah, when you when you when, when you see what they were doing on offense and you see how they were trying to just figure out how to, you know, make sure that they could get their play in and get it snapped before the 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 uh you know the play clock was going up i mean if you see the problems that they were having on offense especially early in the games at washington state at oregon you know on the road and all of a sudden now the officials think that they're trying to do something on defense especially when these guys were like going tempo and they were and they were going up and they were going they were trying to go as fast as they could and now all of a sudden washington's the one that's trying to simulate stuff 
I mean, I, I agree 100% with DeBoer. When you watch that tape, and especially live, with those guys going as fast as they were, there's, they were lucky to make sure that they had all their players on the field at the same time, let alone getting to the level of where you think simulating a snap is going to have some sort of effect on the offense. I mean, it was it's comical. Just yeah, comical. he said the uh, uh, word was that somebody on the defense clapped. It's comical. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I said, I've never seen him that animated. It's so, almost like you, you'd have a better argument saying someone in the uh, someone in the crowd clapped, and that's what caused it. You know, like someone could have been clapping because of a play. Like a Washington State fan could have been clapping for a play, and all of a sudden they could have taken that as a signal. Or I mean, yeah. that, that's how that's how ludicrous it was. Yeah, no, it, it was ridiculous. And, you know, getting back to Grubb, <clears throat> you know, that I highly encourage people. I know a lot of people just read the quotes and just kind of gloss over those. But <clears throat> there's so much more t- uh, context when you start listening to the audio. Ryan Grubb gives you a lot of stuff when you you talk to him. He, he doesn't seem to hold back much. So I always think that's real interesting to talk to Coach Grubb. But I also thought it was a I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but, you know, on Monday we had Coach DeBoer. We had Coach Grubb, and Coach Grubb was up there for, what, 20, 25 minutes? And that's pretty typical with Coach Grubb. And then with <clears throat> excuse me, with the co-defensive coordinators, they alternate between Inge and Morrell. We get Inge one week and Morrell the next. But Morrell was only there for less than four minutes. It was only three and a half minutes. And I don't know. It, it, it was just kind of felt yeah. a little odd to Grubb, me. Uh, Kim, since, since you're – I mean, you're there and doing the stuff. I'm sure you're not keeping track of the time, but Grubb is usually 15 to 17 minutes. Right. And this time he was at 22. And and then, like you said, Morell was there for four minutes. And, I mean, he just was like, gave you what, what the questions were. And then they were like, all right, that's it. And you're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, because they had to get to DeBoer, and DeBoer was a full 25 to 30 minutes. So, um, but yeah, I mean, Grub Grub will always stand up there. He always gets the most questions, and it's it's hard not to ask a guy a question, you know, that many questions when he's got the kind of offense that he's got rolling right now. Yeah, Morell just seemed a little irritated and get me the hell out of here. That was was the mode he was in. So, um, you know, some guys don't mind talking to the media, and Morell just didn't seem in the mode to to deal with that. But Ryan Grub at uh, one point. <clears throat> excuse me, 1.4 next year. I think Tosh Lupoy is, what, at 1.6, 1.65? Six, six, I don't know. Yeah, he's up there. Wh- whatever it's at, he's <laughs> he's getting paid way too much. He's no, getting paid to recruit, not coach. Well, yeah, and, you know, not to delve into the Oregon side, but, you know, Canzano had a real interesting article about uh, what was going on down at Oregon <clears throat> where they um, – Phil Knight's just in this mode recruiting over everything, and they – I mean, it's pretty obvious to us that they hired some guys that were questionable coaches, you know, but were really, really good recruiters. And I think at the end of the season, um, it sure showed that, um, you know, there was some coaching decisions that Oregon made that caused them to lose a couple of games. But, you know, when we talk about Oregon, we got to get in. We're into that time of season right now with the coaching carousel. You know, we're seeing <clears throat> David Shaw step down. Colorado still got an opening to fill. And not only the head coaching jobs, but um, there's some coordinator and position coach jobs open up. The Oregon offensive coordinator job is open. The um, uh, 
uh, Cal offensive coordinator and offensive line positions are open with Dillingham going down to Arizona State. You were wondering how many coaches he's going to take with him. And will Washington have any coaches poached from them? Um, have you heard anything about Washington coaches at all, Scott? Uh, the only one was what you relayed to me about Scott Huff, and I'll let you let you talk about that. But um, that's the only one that I've really heard anything on. I haven't heard anything on anybody else. Yeah, just from a couple of people, I've heard that Justin Wilcox may be uh, talking to Scott Huff about the offensive coordinator position down at Cal. Um, you know, my uh, another guy that I know pretty well that uh, is pretty close to uh, uh, Justin Wilcox is, if you're hearing that, you probably have a pretty good source because Justin doesn't even tell the AD who he's looking at until he's uh, finalized a guy. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I don't know that Scott um, would be interested. In, I, I'm sure he'd love to be an offensive coordinator somewhere, but I'm sure he's looking at this staff. And if you're on this staff, you could be here a while, especially with DeBoer signing an extension. And, you know, once you get into that spin cycle of going to different schools and taking over for a guy who's been fired. I don't know how much stability you have. So it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on that. Well, one thing to consider, Kim, is that, you know, if Grubb is as coveted as we expect that he's going to be down the road, could Scott Huff end up being Washington's next offensive coordinator? I mean, he's going to end up with two or three good years of this system behind him. He's going to know exactly what DeBoer wants of him. And uh, just like, uh, just like, uh, Ryan Grubb, Scott Huff's got his background with the offensive line. That's where it starts. So I, I could see an argument for where there would be real continuity by going from a guy like Ryan Grubb to Scott Huff. If it came to that, uh, we'll obviously see. But there are some there's some reasons to be bullish about that going forward, um, whereas a year ago, these types of things were really up in the air. And Scott, I don't know the answer to this. I don't think any of us do. But wouldn't you see this offense that Washington is running? Is that Ryan Grubb's offense? Is that Coach DeBoer's offense? Is it 50-50? You know, if they were to if Ryan Grubb was to leave somewhere, would the offense really change that much? Because, uh, you know, if Kalen DeBoer's running it, if Ryan Grubb went elsewhere, how much different would his offense look? Because he doesn't have Kalen DeBoer. And I think those are questions that we just don't quite know the answer to right now. Well, my guess is the framework would be Kalen DeBoer's, but you know every every offensive coordinator is going to bring his own stuff into. You got to let their personality shine a little bit. If if you're going to pay someone that kind of money and give them the control that they have, you can't just say nope. This is what you're going to run, and and that's it. And because no one's going to want to come and be a part of that because you're just basically the puppet of the of the head coach. But and I think one of the things that Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer have talked about several times is that they just, you know, they've worked so long together and they're friends and they, they, I mean, Ryan, DeGru Ryan Grubb has followed DeBoer everywhere that he's gone pretty much. And, and so, you know, these two are, are, are in sync and they've built that relationship over the years. And so I think it's going to be tough for Kalen DeBoer if, and when he loses Ryan Grubb, it's going to be tough for him because he's been so in sync with his offensive coordinator that now he's either going to have a guy that he's only had for a couple of years on his staff, like, like a Jamarcus Shepard or like a, like a Scott Huff, or if he brings in somebody brand new, maybe he's worked with them in a previous at, at a previous uh, stop, 
but he hasn't been with him for the last five or six years. So that'll be real interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah, Grubb was with him at Sioux Falls. He was with him at Eastern Michigan, Fresno State, and out Washington. Yeah, but he's followed him pretty much, and those two seem attached at the hips. But the other, uh, you know, just taking a look, you know, keep an eye on what's going on on the Oregon coaching staff, the Cal coaching staff, and then as well as what's going on down at Arizona State. So um, rumors of Scott Frost maybe being the offensive coordinator down at Arizona State. It'll be interesting to keep an eye on that. But, but boy, hiring a 32 – Arizona State just can't seem to get it right. Now they hired a 32-year-old head coach. What do you think of that, Chris? Uh, I think it's fine. I think it's a situation where they got a guy who knows that culture inside and out. He's from there. He played there. Or, you know, that's He's going back to the desert. That's where he wanted to be. Um you know, clearly he's an offensive guy that knows a lot. I mean, this could be a DeBoer hire um, outside of the the lack of head coaching experience. Um, this is a guy that, that could do it just like Lanning just did it at Oregon as a defensive guy who'd never had any head coaching experience. Uh, there's no doubt that this guy's got a lot of juice with him. He comes to Arizona State with a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm. Sounds like he knocked his introductory press conference right out of the window. And uh, just uh, everyone's all jacked up about having him down there. And we'll see how he arranges his staff and kind of goes that way. I think a guy getting a guy like Frost could be a real home run for them because he does bring kind of that veteran presence. And say what you want about his tenure at, at Nebraska as a head coach, but he was successful as a head coach at Central Florida. He was he was success. He's had successful stints as a head coach. He kind of understands a little bit of the things to avoid and the things to embrace as a head coach. And he can certainly be a, a, a strong mentor to a guy like Kenny Dillingham. So I think it could be a great, a great move if that's the direction that he, uh, that Dillingham ends up going. Yeah. And not only t- talking about the coaching carousel, but on December 5th is the first day players can officially put their names into the portal, the transfer portal, but that's already started. Guys have already come out and started saying that they are leaving. None from Washington yet. We are expecting some of that to happen, but probably, what would you guess, Sunday, Scott, we'll probably start hearing some stuff? Uh, yeah, I, it's, it's just really hard to tell. Um, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I've got I've got stuff ready to go on, on the guys that I'm hearing are definitely gone. And um, I would expect between five and ten, somewhere in that range. Um, and it isn't because they're dissatisfied with anything or they hate the coaches or anything like that. They just see the writing on the wall and they, they don't either feel like they're a fit in the school or the program, or they don't feel like they're ever going to find, um, playing time and they want to go play because they only have like three or four years to play. And, and so they're, they're deciding to leave. So, uh, just keep an eye out for it. We're going to have it covered wall to wall and we'll also have impacts on, on how it impacts. The, uh, the program. Which yeah, what's interesting is some of the guys, the program that seems to have the most in the conference so far is Oregon, and I hate to bring up Oregon again, but uh, uh, Ty Thompson says he's going to enter the portal. I'm expecting him to wind up at Arizona State with uh, Dillingham. He's from the Phoenix area, and then they lost another quarterback in Jay Butterfield, and a lot of people thinking he possibly could wind up over at Oregon State, which I think would be a good fit. Uh, will Bo Nix be coming back to Oregon? And then Dante Moore, the five-star uh, quarterback. Is he the number one quarterback in the country, Scott? He's in the top two or three. I know that. I haven't looked exactly. He's, yeah, committed. he's in the top two or three. 
Yeah, he's committed to Oregon's, and then they lost uh, the wide receiver also. So those are the ones that we know about. So we'll see if there's any exodus from – did we hear anything on USC? I thought there was one or two guys from USC. I can't – There might have been. I, I, I haven't been – honestly, my, my, I've been in head-down mode trying to get ready for signing day, which is in three weeks. So. Well, there's, there's There was a kid uh, today, a uh, 2023 USC commit, who just flipped – to UCLA kid by the name of Grant Buckley. Um, so there, I mean, but this is, there's a lot of flips right now. Um, we'll, we'll get into it more with, with Scott's recruiting stuff, but there's, this is the year for it. I think we were just a year ahead when we talked about uh, with the portal and NIL and all this stuff that we thought that there were going to be a lot of flips last year and there really wasn't as many, but this year I think it's going to be extreme. And you bring up Dante Moore, uh, Kim, and, there is a connection with Washington only in the sense that there's a thought because Ohio State lost their quarterback commit to Florida State that they were, you know, they they uh, offered up uh, Lincoln Keenholz, the Washington quarterback commit. He went to uh, Ohio State on an official visit during the Michigan game. I guess it's since come out that they that they did offer him, in fact, and it kind of makes sense. He really at that level with Ohio State, I don't think you offer a lot of official visits without offers, um, but it doesn't necessarily sound like he's still kind of 50-50, not exactly sure what he's going to do. But if Ohio State also makes a push for a guy like Dante Moore, that could either solidify Keenholz. Ohio State also has one of the top 2024 quarterbacks already committed a year ahead of time. So there's a lot of moving pieces going on. And so, um, you know, anybody that follows recruiting for Washington, get ready for, for it to be pretty schizophrenic because there's going to be a lot of movement in the coming weeks because signing day is coming up. In, what is it? The uh, 21st this year. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's three weeks away and uh, it's going to get crazy. Scott, they lose. I mean, if Oregon loses, if you have Butterfield going into the portal, Tide Thompson going into the portal, and if Bo Nix goes to the NFL and they lose Dante Moore, boy, quarterback's going to be a mess down at Oregon. Do you think those oh, guys yeah, are de- <clears throat> definitely? You're probably looking at two or three portal guys yeah. at that point, maybe even. A Why are you laughing, point. Scott? Why are you laughing? Come on. Well, now. it's just. I mean, at the start of this season, would you have thought Oregon would be in this spot? I'm not laughing you know, due to their misery, although that is kind of fun as, as well, but it's more, it's just, it's amazing how things can change in three months. How much of this has to do with uh, uh, NIL deals, by the way, what would your guess be? Um, I don't think I, you know, I, NIL plays a, uh, uh, plays a part for sure, but I don't think it plays as big a part as a lot of people want to think it does. It does play a part because if, if two schools are equal and you're like, I like both of them for almost the same reasons, and one's offering you a million dollars a year and another one's offering you 300,000 a year, where are you going? You're going to the one that's going to offer you a million dollars a year. So I think it's, it's really the NIL is the icing on the cake for these guys. I think they want, they've got to have a great relationship with the coaching staff. They've got to have a great relate, you know, got, got to have a good feel for what the offensive like is like, what the program is like, how they fit in there. They also, you know, some, some guys, not a, very many, but some guys are going to be looking at what what's the majors, um, what what can I do with my with my degree from that school, and then the the last thing really comes down, and and then some of it's going to play in uh, ge- geography, although not as much as it it used to, but the biggest thing for these guys 
is really the relationships they have with the coaches. So you're not just going to be able to say this late in the process after not establishing um, a relationship with a kid, you're not going to be able to walk in and say, Hey, we've got $5 million a year for you to come in. We've never talked to you really before, but we need a quarterback really bad. Here's 5 million a year. That's obviously going to turn some heads for some kids, but I don't, I don't think it's going to sway a lot of kids because you got, if you don't feel comfortable with the coach, something that you're going to have to spend the next four or five years with, I, I don't think you're going to that school. So I don't think NIL is as big a deal as some people make it out. Well, I think Dante Moore is going to get a good NIL deal from Oregon. Wherever he goes. Yeah, wherever and, he goes. And then if Ohio State comes in and they're willing to come up with a big NIL deal and take him over, you know, Keenholds, that definitely impacts Washington. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on uh, because if that does happen, that could impact with what well, goes on. Well, let's just put it this way. Depending on who Oregon gets in there, what if he has a relationship with Jaden Rashada? Yeah. The kid from Pittsburgh High School that Washington was in on for a little while. He's committed to Miami. Well, what has Miami done but only destroy the confidence of their quarterbacks? Oh, yeah. And, and they, they look horrible. Does D- Jaden Rashada want to be a part of that? I don't know. Yeah. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. Um, word from our sponsors. And when we return, we'll um, break down what happens this weekend and impact on what bowl that goes to Washington. Then we'll touch bases on recruiting, get you guys up to date on that and touch bases on basketball as well. You're listening to the guys from dogman.com on Dogman Radio. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. We are back. Pac-12 championship game is at 5 o'clock on Friday. I don't know why they play on Friday when everybody else plays on Saturday. But uh, USC uh, against Utah and everything indicates that if USC wins that game, that they're probably going to be in the uh, CFP. And if uh, Utah wins, then uh, uh, USC would be bumped out. But I think everybody's rooting for USC. If USC wins, there's a really good shot, probably um, really good shot that Washington winds up in the Rose Bowl. Is that uh, kind of your gut feeling, Chris? It is. And the reason why they're playing on Friday is because that's where Fox wants it. They want to have that that, uh, time slot all to themselves. They want it to be the only championship game available to them and might as well play it that day. And, And to be honest, what is the difference between playing Friday and Saturday? Seems fine to me. You got a Friday night primetime game. Game starts at 8 o'clock in the West Coast. Perfect. Or East Coast. It's perfect. Yeah, so because I if it was a, Saturday, they'd probably make it a 7.30 game. Is that, uh, yeah, they, they, they do something to make it really wonky and, and not attractive to the rest of the country. So I think it's a really good move to have it on a Friday. 
Um, you know, most of the, I'd say a lot of the high school stuff is, is over-ish. And even a lot of the high school stuff has gone to Saturdays anyways, especially in Washington, for instance. So, um, you know, not a lot of conflicts and it makes a lot of sense on a number of levels. But when you talk about the Rose Bowl potentially for Washington, this is where if you're a Washington fan, you're rooting like hell for USC because this is where you want chalk. You want USC to win. You want TCU to win. You want you want basically the, the teams that are in the final four right now, which are Georgia, Michigan, uh, TCU and USC. You want all those guys to stay the same. You don't want there to be any upsets. You don't want anything else happening so that. Once those guys are established, then the other New Year's Six Bowls will go and have their criteria. The criteria for the Rose Bowl is that if the Pac-12 has a team that's in the playoff, they get the opportunity to pick whoever they want. So they don't have to pick Utah. They don't have to pick Washington. They don't have to pick Oregon. They don't have to pick it. They can pick whoever they want. But it has to be Pac-12. Utah's already defeated USC this year, and I think that USC also understands that, you know, a big win. I mean, a substantial win, you know, by two or more touchdowns would just solidify them being in that top four. If they win by one point, Kim, they're going. It's there's just no question they're going. They're a they're a one loss Pac-12 team with a name like USC in LA. There's no way they're not going to the college football playoff. If they win by one point, they don't need a a multiple point win. They need a one point win. And the thing is, that's ironic about this is nine time, 99.9% of the time I'm rooting for Utah over USC because I've never been a huge fan of USC. But this is the year you vote for USC if you're a Husky fan, because it, it, it makes Washington's bowl appearance better. Yeah, and it looks like if uh, Utah wins, Washington um, is probably either Holiday Bowl, more than likely the Alamo Bowl. And from what I'm hearing, the uh, Alamo Bowl would just do cartwheels to get Washington to play in the Alamo Bowl against Steve Sarkeesian and the Texas Longhorns. That'd be a good game. It would be a good game. But, uh, yeah, yeah that, that Alamo Bowl is not what you want if you're a Washington fan, especially – you know, I just George Klyavkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, said today they, they had their their press conference ahead of the Pac-12 championship game. They had it the day before the actual game. And he's sitting here saying how, how great it is that they got the two highest placed teams in the in the championship game, which is just laughable. I mean, it's just I don't even know why he would go there and open himself up to a lot of criticism, specifically from Washington fans that are looking at this and know for a fact that the only reason Utah is ranked ahead of Washington in the college football playoff poll is because they want to make sure they had the top two ranked teams. You look at any objective criteria, Washington is ahead of Utah. If for no other reason than Washington's 10 and two and Utah's nine and three. I mean, so if there's there's no reason to play the games, then it's the whole thing's a farce. So well, the, I don't the know why. Is, it, yeah, the thing is, it kind of came down to and you, you listen to what they say, and I don't agree with it. I'm just saying <clears throat> they almost took a college basketball feel to it because they said, you know, Washington and, and Utah were very close in our minds. And we looked at what the worst loss was. And Washington's lost to Arizona State is worse than Utah's worst loss. And that's where they went. But 
I agree with you, Chris. Washington's ten and two. They beat a lot of better teams than than uh, Utah did, and Washington ends up lower ranked. It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, when they when they start criterion, when they start prioritizing losses over wins, that's when you know they're trying to find a justification to fit their decision, right? That's it. When you start looking at those things, when you start taking into account, okay, they said, well, Utah's best win is what? It's the it's beating USC but it was in Utah. Mm-hmm. Washington went to Oregon, beat an Oregon team that was ba- they, at the time they were ranked higher than what USC was ranked at the time they lost at Utah. So it's a Washington has a better overall win on their resume than anything Utah has. They're they're saying that the six the, the loss to Florida who is 6 and 6 is obviously a better loss than Washington's loss to Arizona State. I don't think anybody's doubting that or disputing that in any way. But I'm not necessarily convinced that they can consider that a good loss. That's still a bad loss, and especially the way they lost. So I just, you know, if if if, if they're really going for that kind of criteria, to me, that's them searching for a reason to justify why they picked the way they picked. Anybody in the national media looked at that and said, why is Washington being picked behind Utah? Well, it's because Utah's playing in the title game. If the divisions hadn't been erased and we still had the North and South division guys, Washington yeah. would be in the Pac-12 title game. And guess what? I would bet every dollar in my bank account that Washington would be ranked right now ahead of Utah. And I don't think there's any doubt about that. Well, you know, as far as the rankings go, you know, I, if Washington, uh, if Utah loses, Washington's going to jump ahead of them anyways. So we'll see how that goes. Well, that's, but, that's true, yeah. but it still will affect their bowl situation. Scott, let's touch bases on recruiting. Um, we've got signing day about three weeks away, but uh, update us on what's going on with recruiting. Have you heard from Lincoln um, Keenholes, anything you can update us on? Actually, guys, um, well, real, 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 real quick, I, I don't know if you can hear this or not. There was uh, there's breaking news. Okay, what is that? Caleb Presley taking an official visit to Washington. Okay, and that's the ninth, probably, right? Uh, no, no, no. He's this, taking this a, an official visit Friday, starting okay. December second. Caleb Presley is the defensive back out of is he at Rainier Beach. He's at Rainier yeah. Beach. He's a four-star guy who's committed to Oregon. So Yes, he is. But um, we've all been talking about that. I've been talking about it for multiple weeks now that I thought that Washington was gaining momentum for a while there. We didn't think that maybe they would take him because we thought there might not be enough room in the class. But I think with with his what he does well – and with what Washington's looking for in a defensive back, I think they just decided, you know, local kid, four-star guy that we have a good chance with, then we're going to take him. And I, if, if Caleb Presley was outside of the state of Washington, I don't know if they would take him. But since he's a local kid, he's a guy that, that um, uh, Juice Brown has done a really good job in, in establishing a relationship with. He's supposed to visit this weekend. I'm going to be changing my crystal ball momentarily over to that and uh actually i just did and um you know i i think that washington is is in um great shape to get him and by the end of the weekend we should know something 
Yeah, I was going to say, Juice Brown actually just tweeted out, why not Washington, a few minutes ago. And then uh, Courtney Morgan, Washington's recruiting guy, uh, did a loyal to the soil tweet. So I, I think things are lining up to, uh, if, if you're listening to this, I would expect a, a, a flip of Caleb Presley from Oregon to Washington here pretty soon. Still expecting them to hit the portal, portal for minimum of one and more than likely two corners, Scott? Uh, I, I think one is probably the number that we're probably looking at. Um, depends on how they feel like they're going to do with the JUCO defensive backs that they, uh, they've been looking at. Uh, Channing Canada took a visit to Washington for the Colorado game, loved his trip, um, and but he's got a couple more visits, and TCU is is lining up to bring him in that, that weekend before signing day. So I think Washington is going to have a struggle to get him in the boat, but, you know, you just don't know. So it – that that's kind of where things are going. But I think, Kim, you're right. At least one, possibly two, but probably one. And Lincoln uh, Keenholz, the quarterback that Washington had committed out of South Dakota, took a visit to Ohio State. Still not clear if he got an offer. He's not real big on talking to the media, Scott. Yeah, I mean, well, Chris alluded to it earlier. I'm pretty sure he did get an offer. Um, I, I'm not um, sold that he's going to flip yet. Um I think if it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. So I think the longer this goes, it helps Washington. He's going to host the Husky coaches as well as the Ohio State coaches. And uh, we'll kind of see where things go. I still think Washington's got a decent shot of keeping him in the class. They're going to swing away and do what they can. Um, if they don't get him, then you can definitely expect to see them go to the portal. I think they're going to go to the portal, even if Keenold ends up signing with Washington. If Mike Penix decides to leave after this year, and you know, I've been one of the people who said over and over, there's no way Michael Penix is coming back. I'm not saying he definitely is coming back, but I think it's it's much less clear what he's going to do at this point than it than it was, say, a couple, couple weeks ago. Um, but if he doesn't end up coming back, they're going to go to the portal for a guy. If he does end up coming back, I think, and Keynotes ends up signing, I think Washington just stands pat. Anything else on recruiting we need to update, Scott? Recruiting um, the big. So obviously uh, Presley's going to be in this weekend. That's big. Um, I don't know how many other official visits where we'll have to see if we can figure that out. I thought the big weekend was going to be next weekend when they when they're going to have at least two or three guys in. Um, and I know of a couple of uh, uh, commits that are also planning to maybe make unofficial visits to come in and, and just meet with the coaches one last time. Um, I'm still trying to put together how many guys are going to end up enrolling early um, that'll be a, a story up for probably next week or the week after at some point. And um, so, but I think you can expect at least five or six guys from the class to end up uh, enrolling early. There's fewer than I thought that are going to show up. I, there were there were a lot more that I thought were going to try and show up early, but some of them are going to these Catholic schools that don't allow kids to graduate early. Some of them are going to um, schools and, and they, they're basketball players, they're track guys, and they want to have one last season of of that. So they're not ready to, to do that. So that's kind of, you know, uh, where things stand on the recruiting trail. I could see upwards of three or four more high school kids. They have 18 currently. I could see three or four more. Um, I could see three or four uh, key uh, transfer portal guys. And then we just move on from there. Yeah. Um, basketball tonight. Uh, Washington opens up conference play down in Corvallis against Oregon State. Uh, Wayne Tinkle, who took him to the what Elite Eight just a few years ago, um, 
Wayne Tinkle's kind of under fire, and Oregon State's not going to be that good this year. But it's it's kind of odd that the uh, basketball team is starting conference play with a game Thursday against Oregon State and then back home again Sunday at noon competing with the Seahawks. I don't know who made the schedule on that. But then they got Cal Poly, Gonzaga, and Auburn. So kind of strange where they're starting conference play this early and then going back into um, – you know, the preseason stuff, Chris, I, I don't remember that happening before. Well, it's happened the last few, it happened with the COVID year and then it's kind of evolved from there. What I don't understand is why they're still breaking up the geography of the early games. Like, you know, they play at Oregon state tonight, but then they go and they host Colorado on Sunday in Seattle. It's like, why wouldn't it be Oregon or why wouldn't they just do the Oregon road trip now and just get that over with? I mean, it, Again, I just these are things that I think the computer spits out for them and they don't put a ton of thought into them. Truly, I just don't I, I'm not convinced that they, they put a lot of thought in. Like you mentioned, you know, a Seahawks, you know, going you're going and having a game played at noon on a Sunday. Yeah, they're not going to be competing with anybody, are they? Um, yeah, I told so you my I, theory. I've told I talked about this for years. You know who does the schedules at the Pac-12? Yeah, computer. No, That's, yeah, well, but it is a computer. The secretaries do that. it. The secretaries do it. Yeah, no, on their lunch break. It's a computer. <laughs> but yeah, it's just uh, you know, Oregon State's going to be so different than they were last year, and that's probably a good thing for Oregon State. Um, I think they've they've lost like they lost like their top four or five scores from last year, but you know they were one in nineteen in the conference last year, so that that's probably addition by subtraction. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they do. I think they're obviously off to a much, much better start this year. But again, Washington's off to a much, much better start, too. I mean, they only had the one slip up against Cal Baptist, but they won the Wooden Legacy Tournament with good wins over Fresno State and St. Mary's. Came back with a, with a good win over a, a Seattle team that's pretty pesky. And I think they'll prove to be a pretty, pretty good team when it's all said and done. So I think that will be considered a, I don't know if it'll, it won't be a quarter one type win, but it'll, it'll still be considered a pretty solid win. Um, so, but Washington needs to get this. They need to get Pac-12 uh, schedule off to a really, really good start. And this is one way they can do it by getting a, a good road win. Winning on the road in the Pac-12, I don't care where you go, it's difficult. So if they can get that done, that would be a great start to what they need to do because I, I think they need to go probably 12 and 8, 13 and 7 in conference to probably sniff the tournament. And even then, it, it might be hard. Um, even with that kind of record, they might have to actually win the Pac-12 tournament to ensure themselves a spot in the dance. Definitely a fun team to watch. And again, it's a um, seven o'clock tip off tonight, I believe. Is it seven o'clock? Yes. And then uh, noon on Sunday against Colorado. So um, Scott Eklund, wrap it up for us. Well, uh, you know, um, it's just been such an interesting year. I was talking to my neighbor outside as I was shoveling some snow. Um, just he. You know, uh, he can't believe where Washington is at, Husky grad, and he's so excited about the future of the program. I think all Husky fans should be excited. As long as Kalen DeBoer is here, I think you need to be excited. He's not a, a, a stupid person. He's going to make good hires. If Ryan Grubb, we all felt, was all going to leave eventually. So uh, just enjoy the year or two left that he's going to be at the University of Washington, and Kalen DeBoer is going to bring in someone good and, and get things done. Um, this team is exciting to watch. It's fun to watch. Basketball team is, is fun to watch, and, and they're going to have a really good season this year, too. So I think things are looking up for Husky uh, sports all the way around. Women's basketball is going to be a lot better. So um, I think Washington 
fans should be, be pretty excited where things are at um, for this for these programs right now. Chris Fenners, wrap it up. Yeah, I just um, I, I'm kind of curious what this Kayla Pressy official visit will do. I know that obviously everyone remembers early on Chris Peterson being able to flip Buda Baker from Oregon, ended up being a cornerstone for the next few years. Uh, not saying that Caleb Presley could be the next that Buda Baker uh, guy in terms of being a cornerstone guy. I think he could be, but I think more importantly, it could be that watershed moment that turns around the the recruiting for, fortunes early for Washington. They get a, a top local guy to stay home, not commit to a top Pac-12 school, and that can end up creating momentum for them going into the 2024 season for recruiting. So I'll be very interested to see how that works. Um, again, not much more to say on a 10 and two season, regular season for Washington. Um, consider me one of those guys, Scott, who also said, you know, a month ago, there's no way Michael Penix comes back. Now I'm not so sure. Um, this seems to be momentum, whether it's an NIL deal or something like that, we'll see. And we'll see also if that has a domino effect with guys like Roma Dunze, Jalen McMillan, Braylon Trice, some of these other guys that, that could easily try to make the, the jump to the NFL now, but may want to stay for another year because they know they're building something special at Montlake. And the basketball team, 6-1, good season, good good start to the season so far. Uh, tonight's game at, at uh, Oregon State, I don't know if it'll necessarily show us all that much more about what, what Washington's about, but it's one game closer to getting Noah Williams back, which I think will be huge for them down the road. Uh, hopefully they'll get him back by say the Auburn game, which would be in a, like two or three weeks. So we'll see how that works, but uh, big game tonight. They need to get up the PAC 12 schedule off to a big start. And if they can do that at Oregon state tonight, I think that bodes well. Then yep. obviously beating Colorado on Sunday would be huge as well. So things are looking up on basketball. Things are obviously huge with football right now. We'll hopefully know what bowl they're going to on Sunday and uh, we'll go from there. Even though the regular season for football has ended it's crazy season beginning for us with the transfer portal with signing day with the coaching carousel and basketball all going on at the same time it's uh it's kind of different because with football we've pretty much got a routine you know that we follow but what we've got going on now it's just like you know we'll go from zero to 60 several times throughout the day and we just don't know what's coming at us and when it's coming at us like we're doing this podcast and caleb presley announces that he's going to take a visit to university of washington and that's the mode we're in right now it's just kind of sitting on the edge of our seat and waiting for stuff to happen because you know it's coming you just don't know when um well we pretty much do know when because when does stuff happen guys when does it always happen when when the three of us are all doing something else. When we're out and none of us are close to our, our house or a computer, that's usually this time of year. Um, it always remind it always takes me back to Christmas Eve and Keith Taylor. Yeah. We we were like, uh, what? <laughs> Yeah, so that's what usually happens. So, hey, we've been working our butts off and pretty much nonstop water through a fire hose since uh, the end of July. So nonstop and we're not going to be slowing down anytime soon. So we do appreciate all you guys. So for all of us at Dogman.com, I'm Kim Grenells along with Chris Fetters and Scott Eklund. Go dogs. <laughs>
I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. 